good evening and welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. It was on this very night, six years ago, broadcasting from a blanket fort in my Los Angeles one-car garage, that the first episode of this podcast was produced and distributed. What began as a hobby and possibly as a way to hear more content soon blossomed. Before I knew it, I'd produced an entire 20-episode season. Then we started receiving enough calls to produce a weekly one-hour episode. Then the awards started showing up. Six strange, wild, but wonderful years later, we celebrate here together again. And I cannot tell you how tickled to death I am to have you here on this journey, no matter when you joined it. So here's at least to six more, and a big thank you to all those that helped make it possible. You know who you are. Now to celebrate six years of the show, I've assembled the strangest, most unusual collection of calls to date. So if true tales of the paranormal are your bag... You're in the right place. And let's begin this evening in the North Star State. Please welcome Adam to the program. Hi, this is Adam from Minnesota. I love your show, and I thought I'd share a bit of what I've experienced. I should start off by saying that these things that I've seen and heard and felt, they weren't one-off occurrences. Most of these things were semi-regular or pretty regular experiences. So I started out as kind of a serious skeptic when I was younger, and I guess you could say my mind is much more open now. Some backstory, from about 1992 until 2006, I volunteered and worked for a nonprofit historic site in the Minnesota River Valley. The site was located on a mile and a half stretch along the Minnesota River, and it featured a little over 40 original historic buildings set up to show kind of a timeline of history starting in the 1840s and then all the way up to the 1890s. Most of these buildings, except for maybe five on the far end, the 1890s end, were without plumbing or electricity. They're basically unchanged from when they were built, except that they'd been moved from their original location and then restored and placed on the site. Another interesting thing is that the land on which the site was built had about 70 burial mounds, which were dated to prehistoric indigenous people. And these were largely scattered through the woods, which inhabited most of the land closer to the Minnesota River itself. So since the background's set up, I'll tell you a little bit about some of the things that I've seen. When you start at the entrance to the site, you would follow this winding road, and you'd go through some woods, and then you'd come out through like a prairie area, and then you'd come back into the woods, and you'd see this log cabin, which was set back among the trees. And this cabin was one that was built by a French-Canadian fur trader named Oliver Faribault, and he and his family lived there. It was built around 1845. You know, it's just basically one big room inside, but Oliver was doing pretty good, so he had uh, windows on the front and the back of the cabin, and there was like doors in both front and back as well. And, you know, since where it was set, it was pretty isolated, you know, if you didn't have guests coming along regularly. It would get pretty quiet out there, just surrounded by trees and such. And so, But it wasn't isolated in a scary way. It wasn't like you were afraid when you were out there or anything. Now, I don't know if it's Oliver or his wife or maybe one of the three daughters, but somebody is, or maybe all of them, somebody's definitely still hanging out in that cabin. Something that, like, everybody, any of the guys with beards knew is that if you were stationed there, probably sometime during the day, you'd get your beard tugged. And it wasn't ever, like, enough to hurt, but it was definitely enough to get your attention. And it just kind of happened out of nowhere. And there were a couple occasions where guests had that happen, and it kind of threw them a little bit. In general, we didn't talk about ghosts or spirits or anything that were in the houses, unless something like that came up, and then, you know, you kind of had to spill the beans. But, you know, our focus was on the history of the place and the people that lived there, so we didn't really go into the ghosts very much. In that place, you'd also hear, like, wandering footsteps outside. And, you know, you'd sit there and you'd be ready for somebody to come in, and there wouldn't be anybody. You know, you'd hear them, like, go all the way around the cabin, 
and they get close to a window and you're like, oh, okay, some guest is walking around looking at the building and they wouldn't show up. So another story from the historic site that I worked at. So I mentioned before that there were all these ancient burial mounds and it's kind of an interesting situation. When they built the major road that went by this historic site back in the 50s, they bulldozed probably hundreds of these things and they didn't even stop until they started turning up ancient bones and artifacts. And then the, the state sort of figured out that they needed to maybe do something different. Um, that resulted in the memorial park that was you know set up by the city which was next door to this historic site that had all sorts of mounds that were fenced off and then probably led to some extent to why the historic site ended up on the piece of land that it did because that enabled both the telling about what these little hillocks were but also you know protecting them more because it was not on land that was going to get bulldozed or anything was going to be pretty much left as it was now, a lot of these things were, as I said, they're spread out all over. They were in the woods, but on the prairie area, when you first come in, you pass through the woods, and then you came out into this kind of big open pasture area, and before you get to the Faribault cabin, which I spoke about last time, but there was a segment, a group of these mounds that were a little bit larger, that were kind of more or less in the center of this open prairie area, and, you know, they were overgrown with trees and other things like that. I spent a lot of time on the site through the years, after hours, you know, at night doing things or whatever, and wandering past those things. And it was never, like, scary. Again, it's not, most of this stuff wasn't ever scary, like, you know, a lot of times it sounds. But it was like you could sense something there, and it wasn't uncommon. And it was so funny, because, I mean, a lot of times it was a bright, sunny day when this stuff would happen. It wasn't, you know, thunder crashing and bats flying around. So it kind of take you off guard. But if you were walking past there during the day, sometimes you'd hear, it would sound just like somebody was talking right next to you, but you could never understand what it was. It was, it was this kind of whispered speech. And it definitely wasn't a language that I recognized or understood. The only thing that was a little creepy I saw one time, but at the same time, not was there were a few times when I was on the site after hours and it would get pretty dark out there because there's no electricity. And sometimes you see what almost looked like a very faint bluish glow from where those mounds were in that, that field. It would just seem brighter there than it should be, even when you had a night without a moon. I don't know. It was just interesting. You, there was a strong feeling of the need to respect those spaces that kind of went beyond my own reverence for history that often set in when I was near those things. There was something to those mounds, you know, some ancient energy that was there. Uh, that was pretty cool. And you were just very aware of one when you came across it. So there you go. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks, Adam. Now, I know I've mentioned it before, but I grew up finding and collecting flint arrowheads. We'd find them in cornfields and creek beds and ditches, anywhere the ground was disturbed. I was, and honestly still am, fascinated with the primitive technology and the fact that remnants of it could be found in my yard. And anyone that's held an arrowhead has felt its energy. A genuine arrowhead, that is. There are still plenty of skilled flintknappers active today that are equally as talented. Now if we scale that connection up, not only to one burial mount, but to dozens or hundreds, surely that energy is amplified. And it's certainly a shame that they were disturbed, and so disrespectfully. It's certainly a shame that older generations didn't see it fit to preserve some of these amazing earthworks. Anyway, this isn't the first time, and likely not the last time, the disturbance of native burial ground resulted in some odd activity. Believe it or not, in some places, it's harder to avoid that than you think. Just ask the folks that live in Boone County, Kentucky. Today we are here in Petersburg, a small town with big stories. People are surprised to learn that an Indian village once stood where Petersburg is today. 600 years before Reverend John Tanner established his station, 
Early farmers, known as the Fort Ancient People, lived and died in this area. For years, people have uncovered remnants of the past civilization. For instance, in 2004, a brand new house was built along Front Street, uh, overlooking the Ohio River. While they were digging for the basement, a gruesome discovery was made, burial remains of the long dead. Folks have uncovered bones when digging uh, wells or planting their gardens. So what does that actually mean to the people of Petersburg, Kentucky? You might be thinking. So what does this mean for the current people of Petersburg? It is well documented that houses and properties that disturb Indian burial grounds have a high number of hauntings and paranormal activities. Thanks to one prominent citizen, Lewis Loder, we have an idea of the strange things that have occurred. Loder kept a diary of daily events from 1857 to 1903. From this diary, we know that there were many murders, suicides, bizarre accidents, and people simply dropping dead in the streets. Some residents have reported hearing drumming late at night, and others have seen Native American spirits standing in their homes. So how do all these ancient dead affect Petersburg? Archaeologists all believe and agree that the cemetery did not end at the basement walls. As you walk the streets of Petersburg, you could be passing over the grave of a defeated warrior or mystic shaman. Now those clips, courtesy of the Boone County Public Library on YouTube. And for those curious, Lewis Loder was a tavern owner and one-time peace officer that lived in the area. We know his name today because of an extensive diary he kept daily that covered a wide span of local and national history. The very same diary the historian mentioned in the previous entry. And these are just two instances where an ancient culture is disturbed only to lead to odd activity. The number of stories like this throughout the years is endless. So we thank you, Adam, for sharing yours. Now this next one is something straight out of a Spielberg film. Diane, welcome to the program. Hi, Derek. My name is Diane, and I live in the Pacific Northwest, and my husband is a huge, huge fan of your show. He listens to it every day on the way to work, and I've listened to it several times with him. But I have a story, and I thought it would be fun for him to hear it on here. Y'all always heard it from me many times. When I was around nine years old, I had a UFO sighting. And it wasn't just me. It was me and my older brother and my older sister. So the age ranges were nine, 11, and my sister was around 15 or 16 at that time. And we lived on a farm. We lived on a 40-acre farm, and our house sat kind of in the middle of it. And so during the summertime, we would sleep outside in the yard in our sleeping bags almost every night. I mean, why not? You know, we're kids. It's the best place to sleep. So just a normal night of us sleeping out under the stars and a UFO comes over our yard. Now, and when I say comes over our yard, I mean, it was low. It came over our driveway. It paused. We had a, a large pull-in area and it paused over the cars, and then it came over to us and tilted on its side. It had green, yellow, and orange lights that circled around the bottom of it, and it had a dome. I mean, it was your typical space disc that you see on movies. Um, it tilted, and I can remember to this day the sound that it made. It was a humming, and it just kind of went, Mm -hmm. the entire time it wasn't loud but it was just this humming that it came out of it it crossed over the yard over top of us and paused on the other side of the yard and this is where the story gets really weird as if it wasn't weird enough seeing this ufo we ran in the house because we just saw a ufo we didn't wake anybody up we slept the rest of the night on the living room floor and we didn't talk about it the next day. In fact, I don't know honestly how long time passed before we did talk about it again. And we were sitting, we have a large family, we were sitting around and somebody brought up UFOs. 
And my brother and sister and I all looked at each other and said, we've seen a UFO. And we all recounted the same story. The other really strange thing about this whole incident is I only remember my brother and I being out there. I only remember my brother and I sleeping on the living room floor. And it wasn't until I was an adult and we were talking about it that my sister said I was there too, that I even slightly remember her being there. Now she was the oldest, she was 16, and she apparently didn't sleep on the floor in the living room with us. She must have went up to her room and slept the night in her bed. But it's just strange to me that the time lapse between when we saw it and when we actually recounted it. We talk about, well, my sister and I talk about it to this day. My brother doesn't like to talk about it. He will admit it. He will say that, yes, we were there and it happened. But he just, it, it messes too much with his beliefs for him to really talk about it. The other strange thing is that for years, I remembered my sister having this dress. And, and I could tell you it was like a smock. It had was white, it had circles all over it. And I asked her one day, so whatever happened to that dress? And she was like, I never had a dress like that. So, I mean, it's just so many weird things. You know, yes, do I think that possibly there could have been an abduction and we just blocked it? I don't know, you know, but it's just, it's just really strange. I just wanted to share that story with you. And uh, if my husband is listening, hello, Scott. Bye. Thanks, Diane. Now tell me, this isn't a scene cut from E.T. or Close Encounters of the Third Kind, right down to the polka dot dress. I'm sure that was a detail in one of those films. But let's not overlook the mystery here. It's obvious that something strange happened to Diane and her siblings. But was it an alien abduction? Or was it possibly some experimental craft our military launched from nearby Fairchild and McCord Air Force bases? Whatever it was, we're honored that you shared it with us here tonight, Diane. So thank you again for taking the time. Now maybe you saw the exact same thing that Diane did. Or maybe you've experienced some other true paranormal event. If so, submit your true paranormal story by calling our toll-free hotline. Toll-free in the U.S. at least. At 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's one 1- 888-608-6444. So this next one takes us all the way to the East Coast, where Bryn from South Carolina is waiting with a tale. Uh, hey there, Derek. My name is Bryn. I'm from South Carolina, and I have two stories for you. This might be kind of long, because I'm a very detail-oriented person. So the first story that I have occurred when I was, I think, about 14, when I was about to turn 15. So that puts it at about 2013. And I have an older cousin who lives in Georgia, and she lives about an hour away from where I live in South Carolina, and she's just right over the uh, state line. And occasionally, when she goes on uh, summer break vacations, she asks me to house sit for her. Now, I don't know anything of about the history of the house. I'm kind of kicking myself that I haven't looked it up. But as far as I know, it's a fairly new building. And it is a two-story house, but what you would consider the first story is technically a basement. And in 2013, they were in the process of having their basement remodeled. And to preface this, my cousin's husband is a little paranoid. He was in the Marines, so I guess it kind of comes naturally. And there are, like, I guess you would call them, like, veranda-type doors in the basement. They just kind of, they're glass, and they, they just kind of, you know, you, you just kind of open them and walk right in. They don't really lock. So my cousin's husband, he had nailed all of those doors shut. So that's a very important detail. And after I got to the house, I had taken a quick look around downstairs just to make sure that nobody was staying in there, like, you know, because I'm a bit paranoid myself. And at the time, my cousin had two dogs. One was an older boxer mix. His name was Max. And one was an older, like, toy poodle. Her name was Mimi. An important detail is that they were both old. So it's not like they're hyperactive puppies or anything. They're both at least 10 years old. 
so I decide to sleep in the living room upstairs, and I'm asleep on this air mattress, or trying to sleep on this air mattress in the living room, and I've always had issues with insomnia. So it's about 3 o'clock in the morning, and I'm finally getting tired enough to fall asleep, and Max and Mimi just start howling, losing it, just run, barking right up to the front door. And I can see the front door from where I'm laying. And the front door is made of, you know, just like the frosted glass material where you can tell that there's someone outside, but you can't see their face or anything, and they can't really see me inside either. So they bolt towards the door. They're barking their heads off, like something is really wrong. But I can see from where I'm laying that nobody is there. But I get up, and I turn on the porch light just to make sure. I peek my head out absolutely nothing is there, like no cats, no nothing. So I close the door, double check, make sure everything is locked, turn out the porch light and go lay back down. And about 15 minutes later, I'm laying there again. And now I'm I'm fully awake. I'm not about to fall asleep anymore. And Max and Mimi are both curled up with me on the ground. And they seem a little bit shaken up. And I hear these like heavy thudding footsteps come up the base of the stairs and now they're carpeted so i know that that doesn't completely dampen all sound but you have to be trying to make your footsteps sound that loud coming up the stairs and i'm max and mimi they're laying there with me and they're just <laughs> they're spooked like i make eye contact with each of them and they just kind of look away from me like no no we don't hear this this isn't happening and the footsteps eventually stopped right at the basement door, and it never opened. No one ever tried to open it. Um, I had it locked, so I would have heard if someone was trying to jiggle the door handle, but I never really got any sort of closure from that. Me and my family still joke about it being haunted. Um, that's kind of the only thing that's ever really happened there. Sometimes I get spooked, but I think it's just my brain playing tricks on me thinking about the footsteps. And the second story that I have for you is actually happened this year, less than a month ago, and it's currently July 2021. So just a couple weeks ago, I was home because I'm, I'm uh, home on summer break from college, and my family has two cats. I live with my mother and my father and my aunt. My aunt was at work at the time, and my mother and my father were asleep. And like I said before, I've always had really bad issues with insomnia. It's about 2.30 in the morning, and I decide to get in the shower. So, you know, South Carolina, it's hot at night. Try to cool off, get to sleep. And I decide I'm not going to wash my hair, which is kind of important because my head wasn't directly under the water at all at any point in time. So I didn't have water muffling any noise or anything or making me hear something that wasn't there. So I'm showering, you know, just doing the thing. And we have a grate in the hallway. It's, a, it's an older house. It was built in the 1920s. It's a former mill house. We've lived there for almost 20 years, and I've never really had anything happen to me before. But it sounds like my mom walks across the grate and, like, she's talking to one of the cats. Like, I can just barely hear her, you know, kind of laughing and whispering to the cats and, you know, she walks on to the kitchen, grabs something to drink or something. So not like three minutes later, I get out of the shower and I peek out into her room to, you know, try and catch her being awake and talk to her real quick. And she is absolutely knocked out. So is my father. And the key thing here is that both of my parents also have issues with staying asleep at night. My mom gets up about every hour and a half, two hours. So if she had gotten up, she would have still been awake by the time I got out of the shower. And, yeah, that's all I have for you. Thank you for your podcast, and thank you for everything you do. Bye-bye. Thank you, Bren. Now, there's a detail there I couldn't help but notice. The fact that the basement was being renovated at the time. Anyone that knows anything about hauntings and such will tell you that activity is often conjured or escalated because of active construction work in a home. Of course, this is merely a theory. 
To date, no concrete proof that this actually occurs exists. The same can be said for ghosts, for that matter. But it sounds like Bryn experienced something unusual. Now, like any other quote-unquote expert on the subject, I cannot say what Bryn experienced was paranormal, but I am qualified to say that it seems like a terrifying experience. So thank you again for calling in. Now, before we hit up this next entry, please remember to check out our Patreon page for $4 monthly bonus content and our merch shop for all your Monsters Among Us goodies. That's patreon.com forward slash Monsters Among Us podcast and monstersamonguspodcast.com forward slash shop. Okay, who's ready for a possible cryptid experience? Chad, get on in here and tell us what you saw. Hey Derek, my name's Chad. I'm from Washington, Northwest Washington to be specific. There was a time in my childhood that I encountered something that I just can't explain. And I have been able to explain it to this day. Probably about middle school, I think. I had to go feed one of our horses a breeding stallion on our upper property. We had a terrace property, three levels lower pasture. Mid-terrace was barn and house and upper property was undeveloped, covered in ferns and whatnot. And it was slowly deteriorating, getting more foliage as time went on. But went up there and I was going to throw a flake or two of hay at uh, our stallion. We were keeping them up there overnight. And I noticed that he was looking towards our upper property and there was an access road that kind of went slant ways uh, on an incline up towards the tree line and we fenced everything off and it was just absolutely covered in ferns. And if anybody uh, ever lived in Northwest Washington, they know that the underbrush around there is just absolutely thick. You, you, you can't even see through it at times sometimes. But that's besides the point. He was looking up there and he was alerting to something up there and having spent most of my time around bar animals and whatnot, when they when they alert on something, it's usually because they hear, see, or smell something that they don't like. So he's staring up there, and of course, I'm obviously worried now because, like, we've had bear, elk, even the occasional cougar wander through. They don't really do much, apart from the cougar stalking our animals from time to time. And then I noticed that my, my black lab that I had with me he was looking up there too. So I'm pretty young. I don't I don't really got much of a recourse if this thing starts coming down the hill at us, whatever it is. And then it proceeded to do so. And people who've spent enough time around uh, animals and whatnot in the wild, you can tell generally what it is by how much brush or what sounds it's making or so on and so forth. And it starts coming down. It's big. It's moving enough brush that it could be the size of a black bear or elk or something like that. But you can't, you couldn't see nothing. He's just coming down the hill. And he's got about 75 yards before he's at this cutoff point where we drove vehicles and it kept the brush down pretty good. And he's barreling down. I mean, he's coming down like a cannibal on fire. And my dog starts getting really just raring to go. He's got his hackles up and he's getting. And this dog wasn't scared much, but it uh, starts getting closer. The horse is going absolutely bonkers, crazy. It's about to break out of the gate on the opposite side of the corral, and it's coming closer and closer. And my dog's getting closer to the uh, the edge, and it hits the edge. And it's a pretty like it's almost like a line you would draw in the in the foliage that it just stops. And my dog is like mid-pounce. And right as it hits the edge of the underbrush, gone. Nothing was there. And I'll, <laughs> it's it's comical now that I think about it, but my dog kind of gave me this look of, dude, I don't know. The horse calmed down, and I just kind of treated it, you know, nothing happened, but I'm still thinking about today. And that's just, that, that's not actually the end of all the creepy stuff that happened around that property. I got more stories, but uh, yeah, that's all I got time for for now. Uh, thanks, Derek. And uh, yeah. Thanks, Chad. Now, I know it's not like me to jump to conclusions. 
and I won't do it here either. But, given the location, Washington State, one of the biggest upright hairy hominid hotspots in the Northern Hemisphere, and the behavior that Chad described, well, I can't help but jump to one here tonight. There's a phenomenon known among the Wild Kingdom as a bluff charge or a mock charge, and it's exactly as it sounds. A large creature charges at a perceived threat, only to pull back at the last moment in an attempt to intimidate an opponent into retreating without any need of violence. Bears do it. Elephants do it. Elk and other ungulates do it. Gorillas do it, and believe it or not, it's been reported more than once that Sasquatch does it. So, like I mentioned earlier, the fact that this took place in Washington State makes all these details a little more significant. But, and as we know, there's always a but, but what if it was one of those other animals that share that same mock attack defense method? A bear, perhaps, which Washington State is full of, or a deer, or an elk. The fact that Chad didn't see what was causing the commotion not only heightened the stress of the situation, but it also leaves us with more questions than answers. Isn't that how it always goes? Well, we thank you, Chad, for taking the time to share your story here with us. Tonight's episode is brought to you by Manscaped. Spring has sprung, and our friends at Manscaped have made the best tools for some spring cleaning on yourself. It's time to clear out that winter bush and join the other 4 million men who trust Manscaped. Use code MONSTERS to get 20% off plus free shipping at manscaped.com. As longtime listeners may know, I'm a huge fan of Manscaped, and they've forever changed my grooming game with their amazing performance package 4.0. Inside the Superior Bundle, you'll find their Lawnmower 4.0 trimmer, equipped with their proprietary skin safe technology and an LED light. Did I mention it's also waterproof? Also included is the Weed Whacker Nose and Ear Hair Trimmer. The skin-safe technology helps reduce nicks, snags, and tugs in those delicate nose and ear holes. And the Performance Package 4.0 doesn't stop there. Also included is the Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing ball deodorant and deodorizer that will keep you smelling and feeling phenomenally clean. And the Crop Reviver Toner, which keeps your downstairs from sweating, smelling, sticking. Now, as if Manscaped didn't already have me feeling like a whole new man, they also tossed in a few free gifts. A pair of performance boxer briefs that are the softest I've ever felt, and a high-quality travel bag to store all of my grooming goodies. So, whether you're the big man ready to emerge from your lair after a long winter, or you're looking for a gift to pamper your Sasquatchy significant other, get 20% off and free shipping with the code MONSTERS at Manscaped. That's 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com with the code MONSTERS. Now, as always, supporting our sponsors supports the show. So thank you for listening. Now back to the stuff that keeps us up at night. Sometimes a call is harder to categorize than most. Is it a ghost story, a UFO experience, or something else altogether? Well... As it turns out, Emmett from Utah has just such a story. Hey, Derek. This is Emmett from Salt Lake City, Utah. Love the show. This experience is something that I had back when I lived in Portland, Oregon. My wife and I, when we lived out there, we used to camp a lot. We worked in the food and beverage industry, so when we would have weekends, it'd kind of be on... Uh, you know, like Monday or Tuesday, or Tuesday or Wednesday or something like that. So anytime we'd go camping, a lot of times there wouldn't be anybody else there at the campsite. So uh, one camping trip we did, we went down to this park, Cascadia State Park, just a little bit east of Corvallis. We found this nice little spot right next to the creek. There was nobody in the campsite, not a soul. 
So that was a little spooky in and of itself. But uh found this great spot right next to the creek, set up our tent, had a little a bit to drink, not a lot, made some food, went to bed, and, you know, it was just a really nice evening. We could hear the creek all night and just nice and quiet and secluded. But uh, around like 11 o'clock at night, I woke up and there were these lights on uh, just to my left. It looked like in the campsite next to me, which was empty. They were just these lights. They looked like street lights, about 15, 20 feet in the air, tops. And there was maybe two or three of them. And they were just sitting there, just on, you know. They looked just like normal lights. And, and I almost went back to sleep, but I noticed there was just this silence, this complete silence. And I couldn't really hear the creek anymore. I couldn't hear any crickets chirping or anything. And I sat back up and I looked over at those lights and I was like, oh, what are those? I couldn't wrap my head around what they might be. I thought maybe some utility workers came to work in the middle of the night, maybe, and they set up some light plants. I'm not sure, but it was completely silent. I didn't hear anything. I sat for five or 10 minutes just seeing if I could hear anything. It was almost like if you've ever had tinnitus where you have kind of a ringing in your ears, it was like that, except without the ringing. It was mostly just this, like, blockage. I woke my wife up, and I'm like, hey, babe, what are those lights, you know? I'm speaking really quietly, obviously. And, you know, at first she's just like, shut up, let me go back to bed. But then she looks up at him, and she's like, yeah, what are those? And, and I, I almost went out and took a look at it, but both of us just, I guess we just freaked ourselves out so bad that we didn't want to risk it. So we ended up just going back to bed. But the next morning I went out and there was nothing there, nothing in the campsite. I thought, oh, maybe this campsite has just some street lights that they turn on at night. I don't know, but nothing, no lights. I don't know, probably nothing to it. You could probably come up with something that explains it. But that's what I'm calling. Still spooks us out to this day when we talk about it. But yeah, we'd love the show. Listen to a lot of spooky podcasts, and yours is the best, man. So keep it up. Take care. Thanks, Emmett. That's certainly strange. And I, too, do a lot of camping early in the week. I've experienced some empty campgrounds, but never experienced anything even remotely as eerie as this. Now, I know many of you want my opinion here. What could this have been? Let's see you debunk this one, Hotshot. Well, my first thought was that this was just the moon. It can be incredibly bright in remote locations, such as where Emmett was bivouacked. And I also briefly assumed it could have been an exceptionally bright planet. Venus, perhaps. Which, as I've reported on previously, can be extremely bright in the nighttime sky. But the brightness doesn't seem to match what Emmett described. And more importantly, there aren't two or three moons or Venuses, Venusi, whatever the plural is. So frankly, I'm out of ideas, save of course for our go-tos, secret government aircraft or a more intriguing notion, beings from another planet or even solar system. So in short, Emmett, I too wished you'd looked outside to see what it was. But in hindsight, maybe you're better off staying in the tent. Thanks again, Emmett, for sharing. Well, folks, this episode is already half over. But if you want to hear more from me, you're in luck. Just last week, I sat down with host and creator of Kinda Murdery podcast, Zevin Odelberg, to discuss a strange murder in the Emerald Triangle of Northern California. We also discussed some paranormal lore, as well as a missing persons case from my home state of Ohio. Look for Kinda Murdery wherever you get your content. And a huge thanks to Zevin for having me on. 
Now this next one comes to us from the volunteer state of Tennessee. Jason, welcome to the program. Hey Derek, this is Jason from Tennessee. Love the podcast. Really enjoyed listening to it. So keep up the good work. My submission is not malicious or I don't know that I'd necessarily call it spooky, but it was definitely something I can't explain. So I thought it was worth a mention here. This would be when I was 12, 13, so 86, 87. I lived in a small cotton gin town in Tennessee. The gin has been closed for many, many, many years, but the houses were built in the early 1900s for the cotton gin workers to live in and walk back and forth to work. So we lived in one of those houses, so the houses have been been around for a little while. My submission has to do with what my mom and I called shadow people, but it wasn't while I was sleeping. It wasn't in the sense of shadow people that I've heard on the submission so far. These were more what I would describe as peripheral visions. And let me explain a little bit. My mom had a rocking chair that sat in front of our front door at a 90-degree angle to our front door. So she would sit and watch TV in, in that chair, and I did as well. So this was not a super common occurrence, but it would happen regularly enough that she and I would speak about it, you know, once a month or a couple times you know, every six weeks or whatever, but we'd be sitting there watching television or doing anything, and on the road or on the sidewalk in front of our house, we would see these figures, as the best way I can describe them. There were never anything that we saw looking straight on at them. It was all out of the corner of our eye and peripheral vision. They were old vehicles or people dressed in what I would describe as 1920 or 30 apparel, the hats, the suits, that kind of thing. We've had several discussions about this, and we're pretty confident that what we were seeing wasn't a figment of our imagination because we both described the same thing to one another. Nothing we saw was in color. It was all what I would call maybe a sepia tone or a gray tone or a brown tone. They seemed to move slower than what a real car or a real person walking by on the sidewalk would move just really, really strange. We would try to go chase them and see if we could see what was going on and never could find anything. Really, I'm submitting this because I want to know if other people have had the same experience. Again, there was nothing spooky or nothing scary about this, but I know we're both not crazy and I know we saw something. And we saw them up until the time we moved away from that house. And I have not seen anything of that nature since. It was only when we lived there. So appreciate the good work. Thanks for the podcast and uh, looking forward to it. Thanks. Thank you, sir. The funny thing about this encounter, or series of encounters, is that the same thing happened to me once. I've spoke about this before, but while I was visiting my grandparents in Florida in the early 90s, I too saw an apparition out of the corner of my eye. My apparition was that of a native man, with a feathered bonnet of some sort, leather and beads, and he was dancing. I'd see him out of my peripheral vision each time I passed the open guest room. He'd be in there, dancing under the ceiling fan, backlit by a large window in the center of the room. And each and every time I turned my head to look, he'd simply be gone. So not exactly what Jason reported, but similar enough that I understand his confusion, and how frustrating it can be not to get a good look. But regardless, it's an amazing story. And hopefully somebody else out there can shed some light on it. Thanks again, Jason, for calling it in. Now, folks, before I wrap this thing up, and I know I'm beating a dead horse to a certain extent, but that should express the importance of my next message. Please, take a few moments to rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever they let you do that sort of thing. Five stars and some pretty words about why you like the show go a long way to help the show grow. You see, we get an influx of good reviews, 50, 100, and suddenly our profile shoots to the top of the homepage, landing page, or whatever they call it these days. And that puts us in front of 
hundreds of thousands of listeners. And it goes without saying, but I'm going to say it anyway. That added attention attracts new listeners. And new listeners have new stories. And more stories mean longer and more frequent episodes. You can say it's a vicious cycle. So if you haven't already, please consider throwing us a bone. Oh, and keep telling your friends about the show. That's a humongous help as well. And we do appreciate it. And to say thank you, I take you right back into the action. This is Gabe's entry out of the state of Texas. Hi, this is Gabe from Texas. This story actually takes place back in the summer of 2016. I was at the time living in Reno, Nevada, and I was visiting my grandparents who live in Northern California in the uh, Lake Almanor area. I was at their house visiting. I think I had planned to stay the night there that evening. And I think some sort of like social engagement had come up with some friends. And I decided that I was going to drive back that night from California to Reno. And my grandma, being the wonderful woman she was, tried to convince me not to because it was dark and, you know, late. And, uh, you know, she didn't want me out on the road. And I convinced her that, you know, everything was going to be okay. I'd get there just fine. And the last thing that she said to me was, well, watch for deer, which is a very valid concern in that area. There's a ton of wildlife. There's a lot of deer, especially on that first stretch in Northern California going that way. So I told her I would. And I started my drive. I got to one particular spot where I was starting to gain some elevation, kind of going up a hill. And I saw an animal's eyes reflecting in my headlights. I didn't have my high beams on like I should have. And immediately I was thinking, oh, I'm an idiot. I didn't have my headlights on. My grandma warned me, I'm there. here's a deer. And I thought I was going to make contact with it. But first thing that I noticed right out the gate was that the reflection of the eyes in my headlights were red. And I don't know, but if most, most anybody who's seen a deer in their headlights, you know, you notice that they're, the headlights are, are reflect the deer's eyes in a green color. So the red immediately kind of stood out to me. That was different. And the only thing that I've thought of since, as far as animals that have red reflections in their eyes when it comes to light, is humans. The next thing is my car started to approach it. Um, I never did click on my high beam just because I had both hands on the steering wheel and I was very, very focused on the situation at hand thinking that I might have to swerve to not strike this animal because it was wide open. There was no traffic on either side. So I had plenty of room to work with. I was driving a Subaru WRX at the time. So kind of a turbocharged sports car. And I was probably going quite a bit faster than I probably should have because I was a young guy and going fast was cool. But as I started to approach this animal in my headlights, one, I got an idea of like the sheer body size of this animal. I, I, it, it was it was big, whatever it was. It was it was large. The other thing that I did notice for sure is an ear. I, at least I think it was an ear. There was something protruding from the head that seemed pointy, and it looked like an ear. Like almost, and I can't describe, I mean, it didn't look like a deer's ear, because it was more upward. You know, deer, their ears usually come out at nine and three, like on a clock position. But this was coming out at more like 11 and two. And as I basically crossed paths with the animal that had got across the road. I hadn't had to swerve or anything like that. It ended up running away. One thing that I also noted was that the eyes never broke eye contact with me, essentially. Like they never stopped looking at my car. So it never looked at me and then looked at where it was going. As it got across the road, it had always maintained eye contact essentially with my vehicle. It had crossed near a sign that dictated that there was going to be a sweeping turn, essentially. And the level at which the eyes were on that sign, I figured this animal had to be seven feet tall, probably, as far as where the eyes were, because, I mean, it was dang near level with the sign. And since then, I, I've, I've done a lot of thinking about what it could have been. You know, I thought elk, but elk usually lean their head way back when they run. It definitely could have been a mule deer, because mule deer don't run, they bounce. So the eyes never bounced. They maintained a pretty steady plane. Yeah, to this day, I have no idea what it was. It was big, and it was tall, and I think it was bipedal. But yeah, I never got a good look at it. I wish like heck I would have put my high beams on and seen what it was, because it's had me scratching my head for years now. That's not something you want to see on a solo road trip. Thanks, Gabe. 
through the entry. Now let's get a few facts straight before we get going here. Past listeners may remember me discussing the tapetum lucidum, a layer of the eyeball that allows for night vision. Well, for all you newcomers, here's a refresher courtesy of the Theodore Roosevelt National Park's YouTube page. You're driving down a road at night, and as you come around a curve, you notice the shine of eyes in the ditch. Slowing down, you can see a deer standing by the roadside, watching you pass. We've all had an experience like this, the eye shine of some animal or another alerting us to its presence. But why do certain animals' eyes shine like this? Animals with eye shine have a thin layer of iridescent tissue just behind their retina called a tapetum lucidum. This tissue acts as a retroreflector, sending light back through the retina. Basically, the photoreceptor cells of their retina are collecting the same light twice. While this blurs the image, it improves an animal's night vision, allowing them to see light that human eyes can't detect. And as I've also discussed previously, the color of the tapetum determines the color of the eye shine, something Gabe also touched on. Deer reflect green, bear, coyote, and mountain lion do as well. There are a few creatures with yellow, white, or blue reflection. But when it comes to that distinct red color, that's actually light reflecting off of blood cells in the back of the eyeball, not a tapetum. Meaning the animal is lacking the tapetum lucidum layer. Alligators, rabbits, primates, and owls all share in their lack of that reflective membrane. As do us humans. And all of that leads me to this disappointing part of my commentary. Now let's hypothesize for a moment. Could it be possible that an owl was perched upon a branch on the side of the road? It made eye contact with Gabe's low beams, causing that distinctive red eye shine. Then, as it flew away, it did so parallel to the ground, giving the illusion that it walked off rather than flew. But would an owl make constant eye contact while flying, you might ask? Could an owl be mistaken for a bipedal creature, you may be thinking? And would small tufts over an owl's ears be enough to constitute a definitive ear? Something Gabe claims he saw. Honestly, I don't know. Probably yes to at least a few of those questions. But let's say for the sake of argument, Gabe saw the full figure of this creature, leaving no question that it wasn't just an owl. What then? What could it have been? Well, save for the red eye shine, I think the Dogman of Wisconsin and Michigan fame just might fit that description. Just listen to the way that witnesses of Wisconsin's Beast of Bray Road described the monster back in 1993. I told my mom I thought I saw a werewolf, and my mom believed me. It was walking along a good probably seven to ten seconds before... It had turned its head. That thing, that was no dog. That was too big to be a dog. That thing was bigger than me. It had really big claws. It was holding its roadkill like it had elbows. And it was kneeling on two knees, like a human being might do. And I saw it kneeling on the side of the road, and it was eating something. And I came up from behind it, and I slowed down because I thought it was a person at first. So I came up from behind it, and I realized it wasn't a person when I saw its pointy ears. That blast from the past was from Inside Edition. So, what do you think? Does this sound familiar? Or is it more likely that a owl on the prowl is to blame? Now, it's worth pointing out that although Michigan and Wisconsin seem to be a hotbed for these dogman sightings, Claims from witnesses have poured in from all over the country, including sections of Northern California. So thank you, Gabe, for sending that one in. It's always a lot of fun to speculate. And that's going to do it for this episode. 
Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Addie Lloyd. All audio used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And finally, this evening's music was provided by Co.ag Music, Iron Cthulhu Apocalypse, and Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. Thank you so much for listening. Until next week. Hey there. If you didn't realize it already, I do a secret entry at the end of each episode, where we share the strangest of stories. Stories like Casey's, out of the state of Arizona. Hi Derek, this is Casey. I'm from Arizona on the Navajo Reservation, and we grew up listening and hearing the stories about the Skinwalker and stuff, so it was kind of spooky, and we would all us cousins would huddle in one room with no electricity and no water trying to scare each other and we would stay up until we slowly fell asleep one at a time anyways when i was 14 my stepdad got drunk and hit somebody in the face so the police came out and on the reservation it's so far away from everybody we live like eight miles to the main highway so you could see a car coming up So my mom woke him up and said, what'd you do? Because he was passed out and he said, oh, I hit somebody in the face. Oh, they're coming to get me. So he ran out the door into nothingness, which our neighbor is about, closest neighbor is about three miles away. So he like the police came and he like ran out and they were like, okay, well, we can't look out in darkness because we had like a little canyon behind us and there's nothing there's no light you can't see anything he could be hiding anywhere so he said he ran outside then back at the trailer ran around to the front of the trailer for about like three miles on top of the hill so he could see us he could see everybody and so when the police left my mom was like oh great now where is he? he's probably passed out somewhere whatever and then We were just sitting and talking and then we heard him like crying out for my mom and he would seem like he was in agony. He was like, Mickey, Mickey, like, like his foot got stuck or he broke his leg and he kept calling her and calling her. And so she freaked out, grabbed a flashlight and she was pregnant at that time, probably irrelevant, but so she started walking towards like the canyon behind there. So I'm watching her from outside the window as she's walking and I still hear him calling out for her. And it was him. It wasn't like somebody pretending to be him. It was him and he was calling out. Um, she was out there for like 10 minutes and she said every time I got closer to the canyon the voice went further and further away and she said I just got a really bad feeling that somebody or something is luring me out there she said I don't think it's him and if it's him she's like screw him because I'm not gonna waste my time and get eaten by anything out there so she turned around she came back and she told me she was like I got goosebumps and he seems to be going further and I was like that's weird because It just sounds like you can probably see him and the voice hasn't moved for me. And so she's like, oh, that's really odd. And so we waited for him for about an hour and we were just trying to calm our nerves down because we were so nervous. And we were just like praying he was okay and that like he wasn't going to die. So then we heard footsteps and we heard footsteps coming from the front of the trailer. And so um, we were like, hey, as soon as we heard it, we called out like, are you okay? 
And he goes, yeah, it's me, because it's really spooky and there's tons of activity or something out there that I keep hearing stories about. I'll have to have my sister call in and tell you some of the stories. Um, So he came to the trailer and so my mom was like, are you okay? You hurt? She was freaking out. And then he's a jokester. So she was getting mad at him saying, you better not be lying to me. This is better not be a joke. And usually he's like, oh, ha ha, gotcha. But he was quiet. He didn't have a smirk on his face and he was just as scared as we were. (laughs) He said he didn't call out for her and he was just He didn't hear his voice or he didn't hear anything. And he went around and he just sat on the hill looking towards the trailer. And he said he just sat out there just in case, like, the police officers came back. He just wanted to make sure they were gone. So, yeah, that's that's my story. I lived on the reservation for about 10 years. And then when I was 10 years old, then I didn't live on there anymore. So, but like off and on, I would like leave the reservation and go back. So in total of 10 years, but I was there when I was 14. And that was the spookiest experience that I have ever had. But again, I hear lots of stories just about that area. In that area, it's like behind some canyons and like we can hear stuff and hear other things. If It's like around us. Um, there's no like, trees it's just like bushes I don't know how to describe it but we did have some people living on the property too but if they would heard him call out they would have came to the house we were in and it was about two in the morning so they did hear that they wouldn't go searching for him they would come to the trailer to make sure that you know they would hear him too but nobody said they heard anything and it was just kind of creepy anyways I'm listening to your episodes and you're doing awesome. Bye. Thank you, Casey. More voices from the dark. A distant cry in the woods behind the house. Was that mother? A yelp from a darkened basement. Surely sister wouldn't be down there all alone. And now... A cry for help from poor old stepdad from the plateaus. No, I'm not wise enough to tell you who or what is out there mimicking our loved ones. But I am smart enough to have fear for it. And as a valued listener, I sincerely hope you do too. Thanks again, Casey, for the entry. And thank you for sticking around to the end of the program. Have a good night.